Uh, I don't, I'm not a film expert. <coughs> I, uh, but I love to attend and view film, and I love talking about film, and I like film analysis. Um, I teach at a university that has a film program. We have a screenwriting program, production program, uh, directing program, and I'm uh, close to some of my colleagues in, the, in that uh, di division of the university, and so we have a, a lot of dialogue. I have on occasion gone to film festivals, including the Sundance Film Festival, and I co-edited a book of essays called Faith, Film, and Philosophy. I believe that book is available for purchase in the book area here. I haven't confirmed that, but they did ask, and you have a copy there. I see. So, and you just, just picked yep. that up. <clears throat> okay. So now I want you to know that when you publish a book, you are perceived as an expert <laughs> on the topic. <clears throat> but let me tell you the real reason why I uh, did this book. The real reason why I did this book is because now I get a tax deduction on my movie tickets. <laughs> My Netflix subscription <clears throat> and <clears throat> my Apple TV. <clears throat> I'm kidding. Uh, the first book I published was on evil. It was called Evil and the Evidence for God, and I became known as the evil guy. <clears throat> and then I uh, edited a book on miracles in defense of miracles, which I think is available uh, for purchase today. <clears throat> and uh, then I was the miracle guy. So now I was the evil miracle guy. <clears throat> I... Uh, I got, it got to the point, though, where I wasn't being asked to speak on miracles anymore, and I thought it was because I had begged off performing miracles. Um, and uh, maybe they were expecting that. <clears throat> but today I'll be talking about film. There is a slight problem with the title for this presentation. Uh, it's a very simple title. It's Jesus and Film. That gives me a lot of opportunity to do almost anything I want here. <clears throat> but it could give you the wrong impression. I am not going to be talking about Jesus films. In other words, I will not be talking about films in which Jesus figures prominently as a character or the main character. Um, now, Jesus has uh, been the subject of much filmmaking, and rightly so. We understand that. I would say that today, <clears throat> the most powerful representation of Jesus Christ in popular culture is still the Gospels, not film. Uh, no film could ever replace the Gospels in the powerful evocation of a, an encounter with Jesus Christ. So I want you to be clear about that from the beginning, even though I will not be talking about films that feature Jesus. And of course, if a movie is uh, uh, PG or uh, at least PG-13 or above, uh, the first and last names of Jesus are used quite often, um, if you know what I mean. <clears throat> now what I want to talk about with you is the way in which film uh, enters into the broader task of Christian apologetics, because I have heard that this is a conference in Christian apologetics. I think you've heard that too. How many of you have heard, since coming to the conference this weekend, a definition of Christian apologetics? Not very many. Uh, in my experience, we have conferences without always being clear about what it is we're doing. You find out what we're doing by doing it or by seeing other people do it. But I want to give you a definition of Christian apologetics to provide context for what I'll be doing here. Now, I already warned you that I teach philosophy. 
all right? Uh, and a lot of people are a little uh, skeptical about philosophers, a little bit uh, nervous about philosophers, right? And um, many people think that uh, Christian philosopher is an oxymoron, or some kind of moron, anyway. Uh, <laughs> Uh, if you're a Christian, how could you be a philosopher, uh, say many Christians, and if you're a philosopher, say many philosophers, how could you possibly be a Christian? Well, I'm still working on that. But uh, that is my vocation in this world. And uh, my wife would tell you, if you were to ask her, what in the world is it like to live with a philosopher? And she has had to answer that question uh, often. Uh, that a philosopher is someone who goes on and on and on and on and on about things that even he doesn't understand. Right? And then he makes you feel like it's your fault. I hope that doesn't happen uh, while we're together in the few moments that we have. But I want to give you a definition of philosophy that might make you think that's what I'm doing. Because it's a kind of complex, technical definition of apologetics. Uh, You could say that apologetics is the rational defense of the Christian faith. But that's incomplete. I want to give you a more complete conception of Christian apologetics and ask first how we're doing uh, launching this. Is it looking? Okay, well, we'll see how this goes. Uh, I, will ha- I have a slide that puts this on the screen, but I will just tell you what it is, okay? So uh, it's, it's good that I can remember my own definition, I guess, uh, of Christian apologetics. Christian apologetics is the rational formulation and the winsome presentation of a rational case for the Christian worldview and its associated form of life together with answers to objections. I actually uh, said part of that a little differently than the slide itself is. But if you're writing this down, let me say it for you again. And I'll say it the way it is on the slide. Uh, Christian apologetics is the systematic formulation, the systematic formulation of a rational case for the Christian worldview and its associated form of life together with answers to objections. There are three pairs of concepts here. Uh, One pair of concepts is that when we do apologetics, we are uh, commending two things. We are commending a set of beliefs, a set of propositions to be believed. That's the worldview. It includes the proposition that God exists, the proposition that the Bible is the Word of God, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and a host of other things that go with those basic propositions. That's worldview. And we commend a worldview, something to be believed. But not just something to be believed, but a form of life that goes with the belief. The beliefs inform a way to be in the world. You understand that? And so, it is both a worldview and a way to be in the world, a, an orientation to conduct in life that we are commending when we do apologetics. That's the first pair of concepts. The second pair of concepts is that we need to be able not only to make the case for these things, but to be able to respond effectively to objections. And some will say this is the distinction between positive apologetics and negative apologetics. I don't really like this term negative because it sounds so, well, negative. (laughs) It's, uh, 
it's pejorative in sound, right? But what it means then is that the positive dimension of apologetics is building the case, advancing reasons to believe. That's positive. But then the negative side is you either anticipate objections and respond to them before they even come up, or after presenting your positive case, you're prepared to respond to those objections. In other words, deal with potential defeaters for what you believe. And that's the so-called negative task of apologetics. That's the second pair of things. The other uh, pair, the third pair of things, that I really emphasize significantly is that when we do apologetics or when we're going to be apologists we need both to prepare our case studiously and we need to attend conferences and read books and take courses and things like this so that we can keep people like me in business (laughs) no Uh, but also we need to actually be out there doing the job uh, you, will not, you are not doing apologetics if all you do is attend a, po- a, a conference like this. Now, I am. I am doing apologetics, and so are the other speakers. And it's possible that there are people in the audience who are benefiting uh, from what's being said in that they are hearing for the first time the best reasons they've ever heard for Christian belief. And so apologetics is going on in that sense. But basic instruction uh, of of believers in apologetics, um, though that's an apologetic task that's fulfilled by the teacher, um, on the receiving end, you're not doing apologetics yet. (laughs) But it's crucial if you're going to be an apologist that you do that work. And so there is the homework that you do, and then there is the field work that you do. And the field work, of course, is where the rubber meets the road. That's where you are actually doing apologetics. And I want to urge you that you step out in faith, taking whatever you already know, even if it's limited to what you learn in this uh, conference this weekend, and do apologetics with people that you know and that you meet. Uh, You get better at doing this if you do it. All right, there's a lot of practice involved, and you've got nothing to lose. And a great, exciting adventure to enjoy if you will launch out in faith and do this sort of thing. So Christian apologetics is both the systematic formulation and then the winsome presentation of a rational case for the Christian worldview as well as its form of life together with answers to objections. Do you see how those three pairs of things have come out in that? So I'm not real satisfied with a definition which says it's just the rational defense of Christian belief. You understand that? Now I want to give you uh, content to two other concepts. Uh, Worldview and something that has been called by philosophers noetic structure. All right, worldview. That's a term you've heard before. In fact, I used it earlier, didn't I, in my definition of Christian apologetics. A worldview uh, can be characterized as a way of accounting for fundamental concerns or facts that have concerns about the nature of reality. So a worldview will depict what is most fundamentally the case about the world according to that view. Now, there are competing worldviews, so there are competing accounts of reality, different interpretations of reality, how things are. 
The Christian worldview says the most basic reality is that God exists. But other worldviews deny this. Even if they affirm the existence of God, they might not think that God's existence is the most basic reality, and others deny that God exists. But a worldview does more than just say, this is how the world is. A worldview, that's great, thanks. Almost perfectly good timing. See, there's the definition of Christian apologetics. And I have it on film. No. (laughs) A worldview, then, is a conceptual system that does several things, three that I'll mention here. First, provides an interpretation of two things, the world and the place of humans in the world. Right? So it's an interpretation of the world and how we fit into the world. Second, a worldview bases an account of how life should be lived on that interpretation. So a worldview will then say, if that's how the world is, then this is how we should be. And then finally, it expresses this interpretation and lifestyle in various ways. That's very vague because worldviews differ. And so uh, we won't go into uh, how that could be illustrated by different worldviews because we have other objectives this morning. I want to show you, uh, are we on volume? Watch this little clip. Listen to the worldview. It doesn't exist. And believing in tiny imaginary people is just not something we do or tolerate here in the jungle of Noon. Really? Because I bet if I really tried, I could find somebody who believed what I'm saying. You will do nothing of the sort. You will not breathe a word of this lie to anyone else, especially the children. I do not want you poisoning their minds with this nonsense. Our community has standards, Horton. If you want to remain a part of it, I recommend you follow them. Have a nice day. 
All right then, I'll uh, take that under advisement. Certainly appreciate your input. <laughs> now, there are many things we could say about this short clip. First, let's note that this is a child's film. Uh, it comes from the Dr. Seuss story. All right, Horton Hears a Who. And it's actually a marvelous uh, film adaptation. Uh, kids, you might say, are not going to figure out the details of the worldview dimensions of this little clip. <clears throat> but they're there for a reason. And uh, uh, it's not accidental, to say the least. Uh, so that's one thing to notice, is that it is supposed to be a kind of harmless uh, film for children and their entertainment and maybe some basic moral prin principles. There's some real depth here that may be right or wrong. Second thing I want to say about this is that we've got two different worldviews uh, being uh, contemplated. And the kangaroo comes across in a very authoritative fashion, doesn't she? Uh, we, before she shows up, Horton is pretty convinced. He's pretty sure of himself. But she has a very intimidating demeanor. And just by making assertions as she does with the kind of demeanor that she projects is a little intimidating even for somebody as big as Horton. And you can see him kind of back down a little bit. Right? He's just not sure what to do. Now, I don't think he gives up what he believes, but it shakes his belief to some extent. And we live in society together. We live in community with each other. And how we talk to each other and how we reason with each other by whatever means does influence one another. We affect each other in how we believe the things that we believe. And film is one tool that is used to influence the way people think about things in the world. Uh, another thing here is just to note uh, what she says. She says, look, if you can't see, hear, or feel what is purported to be true, then it doesn't exist. Now, this is radical empiricism. Uh, one form of empiricism says, look, if I can't uh, know something on the basis of my sensory faculties, then I can't know it. Now, it might exist, it might be true, but I could never know it. That's one kind of empirical skepticism. Maybe there are truths that we can't know because they can't be known that way. Now, I would still disagree with that because I would say there are, in fact, truths of that sort. And though they can't be known that way, they can still be known because there are other ways to know things. So we have that disagreement with the kangaroo. But another is that she goes far further than that and says, not only, they don't, not only that, not only could we not know them, but they don't even exist. Now, this is uh, hubris, right? That if you can't know something, even if she's right that we could never know it, if you can't see it or hear it or taste it or touch it or whatever, even if she was right about that, on what basis could you conclude that if you can't know it that way, it doesn't even exist? You know, that's absurd. But the absurdity of it is not so obvious when a person can project such confidence that the worldview is true. And we, as Christians, can easily be backed off by the uh, authoritative bearing 
of people in the culture, spokespersons for other ideologies, when we actually have reason and truth on our side, and, and we, sometimes we just need to blow the whistle and call their bluff even. Uh, by the way, it's not clear that Horton disagrees with her view of these things. Actually, Horton does think he has heard from these little people. And so the evidence that he has is precisely the evidence that she requires. But she doesn't have the evidence, and so she thinks he doesn't either. Well, that's another interesting truth. Maybe you have evidence that the person you're talking to doesn't have. On the other hand, it can go the other way as well. So this clip is a powerful illustration of that. But more fundamentally, I'm not just trying to illustrate points I'm making about apologetics using film. I want to show you how film can be such a persuasive tool and how it can insinuate into our thinking very subtly uh, novel ideas about the nature of reality. That's very important. Now I'm going to skip this uh, clip. This is a clip from the movie Contact, where there's a, a conversation between the scientist, this is her here, the astronomer, and uh, the religion guy. And they talk about the relationship between faith and reason and whether or not there's a God and whether science is what we should trust when it comes to questions about God's existence. Um, my, I'm disappointed in what the religion guy has to say. Now, I want you to notice, first of all, and we can't, uh, go into this, but and it, besides they're drinking and that's probably not appropriate here. Uh, but uh, <coughs> uh, I want I want you to notice that first they the 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 filmmakers have pitted these two views against each other, as if you couldn't bring them together. You must either settle questions about the ultimate nature of reality and the possibility of God's existence using science, or it has to be a matter of religious faith and not reason. It's going to come down to that. And then the real question just is, so what should we believe about God if you can't ground belief in science? And so they have that disagreement. They don't disagree about the basic uh, distinction that science tells you one thing and then you need knowledge of God if it's possible on faith alone. They actually agree about that. She's an atheist and he's not. And yet they agree about that. And because they agree about that, I think she wins the argument. Now I can't show you the clip and illustrate that, but um, that again is a cultural artifact and so is the film that reinforces this notion. And when you sit and watch a film like Contact and you see this dialogue between these two characters, both well-spoken, you are having reinforced for you a common prejudice about the nature of faith and reason. Film does that. It takes what's already in the atmosphere and reinforces it in powerful ways through images and characters who are sympathetic. Uh, you might find yourself drawn to the character who represents the religious point of view. 
And you might say he is articulate, he's sensible, he's not intimidated by science, and he stands up to them and he reasons with them, even though he thinks that belief in God is fundamentally a matter of faith and not reason at all. And you might say, well, see, that's a perfectly um, appropriate way of being in the world. Well, is it? Uh, Let me uh, recall for you the book, The Da Vinci Code. Did any of you read that book, The Da Vinci Code? Did any of you uh, buy that book? I say that because, you know, not every bestseller has been read read by everybody who's bought the book. Uh, But when that book came out, and I was traveling quite a lot, as I do, I would see many people carrying this book around. It was like, you know... Chairman Mao's little book in China. It was almost like that, you know. Everybody's got a copy, you know. And uh, they would whip it out when they got on the plane. And there were pyramids of books spilling out into the corridors in the airports. I mean, it was just an incredible phenomenon. This thing was a bestseller, and it made a lot of money for Dan Brown. Well, I didn't want to read this book. Uh, But I was being asked to speak on this topic. And I, uh, I prefer not to speak about a book that I haven't read. And so I read the book, and I found that it was a a page turner, right? And uh, so then I was able to talk about it, and I gave some talks about the Da Vinci Code, which I think now would be, um, have passed into obsolescence because people aren't thinking about that movie anymore, even though they have similar ideas. The ideas have lasted, uh, and they predate the movie. The movie and the book. Now, the movie adaptation of the book was really not very good. I don't know if you agree with me about that. Uh, How many of you saw the movie? Okay, so more of you saw the movie than the book. And you hear it said all the time that the movie's not as good as the book. Uh, This is certainly the case in this movie. And part of the problem with that movie is the casting of one of the two main characters, namely the woman detective from France, who plays the role of the skeptic as they go in search of this grail that her counterpart believes is real. And in the course of their adventure, trying to track this thing down, and this is only part of the plot, uh, others are in pursuit of the same thing. And she is very skeptical about the story that's being told, the narrative that surrounds this object that they seek to uh, locate. And so uh, she is this sympathetic character, the person who represents for you, the reader or the viewer, the person who is properly skeptical, requires evidence, right? Uh, Will not believe something without good reason. And I think that's a good thing. I I, I find that very sympathetic. And so you're drawn into this... uh, Uh, affinity for that character, not only because she's skeptical, but she's attractive. Uh, You see this uh, romance beginning to start between these two people, and you're hopeful that it'll work out, and you know, all the things that are part of storytelling that build sympathy for a character are in this film. I think that they could have cast the character with somebody who seemed a little more mature and up to the job that she was supposed to do in the film and so on. So I think it was a casting problem there. But that's irrelevant. The point is, it's clear that she's supposed to be this sympathetic figure and a consequence of that is that you're supposed to share in her kind of natural skepticism and demand for good reason to believe this story before actually believing it. You got the picture? 
And so you are growing into this kind of skepticism as the movie progresses. Now, late in the movie, she and the other character are fleeing and end up at somebody's mansion. And it's the mansion of a kind of idiosyncratic scholarly type who has this massive library, and it's beautiful. I mean, I envy him his library, if not his hairdo. But uh, uh, here he is, and he projects education, knowledge. He's got all the symbols and all the accoutrements for that, right? I mean, this library, the very house, the wealth, the knowledge, the articulateness as he speaks, his advancement in years. All of this is telling you, the viewer, this is somebody you're supposed to be able to trust on things that he knows about. He's a specialist in this area about which she is a skeptic. Now here's what happens. During the course of their dialogue, she is saying, I'm still not convinced. He said, well, what about this? Well, I still don't know. What do you mean, you know, how about this problem? And he gradually um, takes each individual objection she has and offers a defeater for it and overwhelms her with evidence. And then what happens? At one point, she finally says, of course, I see it now. Now, if you have been sympathetic with this character all along and you have conceded that she is for you a representative of your own requirements that there be good evidence for the things that you believe, now she is your representative when she says, ah, oh, yes. And she expresses that her own intellectual curiosity is satisfied with evidence for something she had not been prepared to believe. You see what's going on there? Now, if you saw that movie, you probably weren't thinking about that. You probably weren't thinking, oh, they're trying to get me to go along with her now. Or you might have, but you might not have been thinking about the technique that's used to actually accomplish that purpose. And it is part of film. Now, I want to introduce you to the concept of a noetic structure. And I have to be brief about this, but it's a very uh, elaborate thing. I mean, there's a lot to a, a noetic structure, but it includes everything you believe. Everyone in here has a noetic structure. It includes everything you believe. Everything. It also includes the history of your beliefs. It includes, then, a history of what you used to believe but don't believe anymore. It also includes the reasons you have for believing the things you do. Your noetic structure also includes your psychological relationship to your beliefs. How it is that you hold some beliefs more firmly and others less, with less conviction. Um, it includes what conditions existed when the belief was produced. How the belief was produced. All of that is part of your noetic structure. Now here's why I have given you that simple definition or uh, account of what it, what it is. When you watch a film, you are being exposed to various conceptions of reality, different ideas about how things are, but also different ways to evaluate claims about reality. So you're being exposed to different accounts of how evidence works or whether evidence matters even. And when this is going on, it just is a psychological fact that this becomes insinuated into your consciousness, sometimes on a kind of subliminal level because you're not thinking about it, you're, you're enjoying the film. You're there to be entertained. 
And what can happen is that there can be little slips, little subtle changes, I call them shifts, in your noetic structure. One little shift in your noetic structure could be as simple as this. I wonder if that's true. You never wondered that before. But now that you wonder it, that has become a feature of your noetic structure. Uh, the story of the Da Vinci Code is told that um, the Christianity that everybody has grown up with is not the real thing. It certainly isn't the only version of Christianity that we have to consider when we think about its actual historical development. And that, in fact, uh, the church and so-called Orthodox Christians historically have suppressed truths about uh, versions of Christianity that were extant in the early centuries of the Christian church and have as much uh, chance of being true as the so-called Orthodox view. Now, you might not have ever heard that. And uh, you might be thinking, gee, I wonder how it is that if there were other accounts of the gospel or of the, um, the Bible and what belongs in the Bible and what doesn't, these are questions of canonicity, uh, even if you've not entertained these kinds of questions, now you are entertaining these questions and you're being asked to think about, well, now how did we get the Bible that we have? and you're being given an account of that that's different, really, than the truth, as I would say. Now, you might not believe this story that they tell you, but it makes you wonder, doesn't it? You stop and you think, and you think, well, I do wonder how in the world, then, we got the Bible that we have in the form that we have it. And I wonder what the answer is to this particular claim that's being made. And, you know, if you're really just watching the movie, this question is usually pretty subliminal. And the problem with that is you won't go out and look for the answer. Because the question isn't before your mind in a very explicit way. And so there is just this subtle shift in your noetic structure. You haven't changed anything you believe. But now how you hold your beliefs has changed. Movies can do that. Now, I need to stop that. Uh, here is a movie called Thank You for Smoking. Uh, in this film, uh, in the scene that I will not show because we lost some time at the beginning with technology, uh, the technological problems. In this film clip that I would uh, showed you, uh, the father and the son are talking about a paper the son is writing for a class, and he's allowed two pages to write about why uh, the United States government is the best government there is the best form of government there is. Now one problem with this is that it's incredibly unlikely, right, that students today are being told to write a paper like that, <laughs> all right? Uh, now, uh, the, the father rightly uh, notes that there's a kind of prejudice in the question. It's assumed already that this is the best government in the world ever, and now you have to explain why that is. Um, that assumption is really not that typical. Uh, so that's why I say this assignment is probably not very realistic. But then he goes on to talk about what you could do in your paper. 
and he explains it to him. And it's really impressive. It's very interesting. And he says, uh, his son says, can, really, can I do that? And he says, yes, you can. And so he starts to write, and he says, if you make a good argument, you can say anything you want. A commentator on this film said the film clearly and repeatedly, repeatedly hammers home the point that in our culture, any viewpoint can be defended with the right tactics, regardless of truth or ethics. This has something to do with getting people to smoke cigarettes, too, by the way. He has an interest in, in getting people to smoke because he's part of that industry of produ producing and selling um, tobacco and tobacco products. And so he has to be able to make arguments that will convince people that this is a good thing or it's an okay thing, it's a safe thing, and so on. And if you do it right, right, reasons aside, ethics aside, you can win. You can win the allegiance of people's hearts and minds. Now, that movie is making a point that I think does illustrate a very typical thing in culture. But not only does it illustrate it, you have to be asking yourself, you should be asking yourself, is this true? Is this correct? Do I think this sometimes? And if not, what's the, what's the right, right way to respond? Uh, there's this film called Joyeux Noël, which is Merry Christmas in French, uh, if you can say it properly, which I probably did not. But this movie, uh, is a, a movie about what happened on Christmas Eve uh, with a faction of uh, German troops lined up against a faction of French and Scottish troops uh, during World War II. And an amazing thing happened, it's historically factual, that uh, they called a truce for Christmas Eve. It is World War I, you're right. They called a truce, yes, they were wearing those funny hats. Uh, and not only did they call a truce, a ceasefire, but they actually got out of their trenches and went out and met on, in, on, in no man's land as they call it, where there, there might have been gunfire and where there actually were lots of dead bodies from the fighting that had gone on in the hours before. And they played soccer together and they traded um, vodka and chocolates, mm -hmm. and they passed around jokes, and they compared visits to each other's respective countries, because they, do live near, they did live near each other. So a German would talk to a Frenchman about a place he had, he had been and enjoyed visiting in France, and so on. The leaders of these particular armies were drinking coffee together. And in the movie rendition, they have a mass, a ceremony. And it's a Scottish priest who uh, conducts mass. And it's a couple of German musicians, <coughs> opera singers, who sing during the mass. And uh, it's just so moving to watch. And then in the aftermath, we hear how this is regarded by superiors on all sides who are um, angry that they allowed this to happen. And so everybody is, um, everybody is disciplined for it. And there's a scene where the priest 
uh, the archbishop uh, might be even, uh, comes to the Scottish uh, priest who had conducted the mass and uh, criticizes him for what he has done. And I want to uh, show that bit to you, if you will take the time with me to see that. Here they are, tending to the wounded. Notice how the camera is working, how the character that's about to show up is introduced, shadowy figure. It's all the effect of camera technique and, and film technology that helps make the movie the narrative that it is and the powerful tool that it is. Movie is sent back to your parish in Scotland. I told you you are not my orders. I belong with those who are in pain and who have lost the faith. I belong here. I am very disappointed, you know. When you requested permission to accompany the recruits from your parish, I personally vouched for you. But then, when I heard what had happened, I prayed for you. I sincerely believe that our Lord Jesus Christ gave me in what was the most important mass of my life. I tried to be true to his trust and carry his message to all, whoever they may be. Those men who listened to you on Christmas Eve will very soon bitterly regret it. Because in a few days' time, their regiment is to be disbanded by order of His Majesty the King. Where will those poor boys end up on the front line now? And what will their families think? Excuse me, Your Grace. The boys are waiting. Yes. They're waiting for me to preach a sermon to the soldiers who are replacing those who went astray with you. May our Lord Jesus Christ guide your steps back to the straight and narrow path. Is that true in the path of our Lord? No, I'm asking the right question. Think about this. Are you really suitable to remain among us in the house of our Lord? <coughs> That's half of the scene that I would like to show you, but uh, we are very short on time. We got started about 10 minutes late, as I, as I said, and we've run now 10 minutes long. But what happens in the sequel is that this priest, the one in charge, 
uh, goes and now commissions these other young men to go and deal with the enemy and cast them in terms of enemies of the gospel, no less than enemies of the country of England as well. And the scene ends with the other priest taking off his beads with the cross and hanging them on the bedside of the deceased man and walking away into the shadows and through that door. And you wonder what will become of his faith. Now this movie raises very interesting questions about whether Christian, Christians and Christian leaders are to be trusted and uh, who, uh, who is to be trusted in matters of faith and belief. Um, my goal th- uh, today has simply been to help illustrate for you the powerful uh, tool that film is to evoke sympathy and cause subtle shifts in noetic structures that should actually be followed up with conscious questions and careful study, but often are not, and thus have a powerful but subtle influence, not only in the broader culture, but even on our own Christian minds if we are Christians ourselves. I'm gonna pray for you and we'll be dismissed. I'll stick around to answer a few questions and you can go on to the next place. Biola University offers a variety of biblically-centered degree programs, ranging from business to ministry to the arts and sciences. Visit biola.edu to find out how Biola could make a difference in your life.